Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Well, just to do a little bit of a run-up into the new material, of course, I would be remiss if I did not point out verse 20 of chapter 2, which in some ways is climactic. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, while this can be pulled out of context, and probably most of us know it out of context, it is great, it's wonderful, it's profound, and has certain mysterious and paradoxical elements to it. But if we tie this in with chapter 1, verse 3, a verse I continue to bring us back to at the start of every class period and probably will continue, you can see a key part of how Paul's thinking, and that's going to become even clearer as we progress into chapter 3. Chapter 1, verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 4, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. So this idea in verses 3 and 4, parallel. Christ comes into the world, and that world is a world under the law, and he dies to the law to bring an end to the law, to bring an end to this present evil age thus delivering us into the new age or the new creation. So if you run that thinking in verse uh, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, if you run that thinking, again, in parallel with chapter 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. So for Paul individually, he has been transferred from this old evil age into the new creation. How? By dying with Christ to that old evil age. So I have been crucified with Christ. Thus, now, present tense, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, you can see the difference between the life I did live and the life I now live. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. How did he live prior? According to the works of the law. Circumcision, the works of the law, for which he was very zealous, even persecuting the church of God. So the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So the crisis, the judgment, the thing that separates the old age and the new age is the death of Christ. When we individually participate in that death of Christ, here it serves his purposes to say by faith, and that's certainly true, by faith, then as it goes for Christ, so it goes for us, and we die to the old evil age and we become a new creation in Christ to walk in the newness of life, which is not by the law, but by faith in the Son of God. And as we're going to see that spelled out by the Holy Spirit and by the inheritance of the promises of God. So I think that that's very important just to see Paul's own self-understanding and the underpinnings of his argument as we move along and move forward. Any questions on that or any clarifications needed on that? I, maybe I'll just add one asterisk while, after I ask that so that as you're gathering your thoughts, if you have any, I will say that in Romans 6, for example, that participation in the crucifixion of Jesus is baptismal. You can see that we have been united with him 
into a death like his, that we might also be united with him in a resurrection like his. And if you remember enough about Romans 6, it progresses on to our walking in newness of life and our walking according to the spirit, not according to the flesh. So even in Romans 6, you can see Paul's same theology, old old age, new creation, and it is the death of Christ that has changed that. And your participation in the death of Christ is in Romans 6. Baptismal is here in Galatians 2 by faith. It serves his purposes to argue by faith here in Galatians. But faith and baptism are never pitted against each other. They're one and the same. If you believe and are baptized, you will be saved. So faith and baptism are, in a sense, two sides of the same coin. And another way that the church fathers have looked at it is, particularly with an adult in view, when the word of Christ, remember the imagery of the sower with his seed scattering the word of the gospel, when that word of Christ enters the soil of your heart, there it conceives and bears fruit. And so there's this kind of language that that you see in the, the imagery of the natural world and seeds and soil, but even in the biological world of husband and wife and the seed and the conception that takes place bringing new life, the fathers use this, and we're going to see it throughout uh, some of the epistles and the New Testament as well. We're going to see this imagery of the Word of God conceiving within us faith. And that, just like a conception, sexually, biologically speaking, is a new life, so when that word of God conceives within us, it gives us new life. And that new life that's implanted in the womb is parallel to that new life of having faith, but not yet being baptized. So just as we want conception to move forward to birth, we want faith to move forward to baptism. Do you see? And it would be as bizarre to pit, to pit birth and conception against each other as it would be to pit faith and baptism against each other. They're both part of the same reality, namely, an, in the one case, a new human being entering the world, and in the case of the spiritual reality, a new son or daughter of God entering the cosmos. Does that make sense? Okay. So we can, we can then take stock in how Paul is seeing this old evil age or what is past and what has now come. And we can see that that's one of the major themes of his theology or underpinning his theology and argument. So into chapter 3 then, Um, Of course, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. And then into verse 2, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing with faith? Probably the best argument that many or at least a sizable portion of the Galatians uh, were Jews following the works of the law. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing with faith? The only other possibility here is that they had received the Spirit by the hearing of faith, and then some of them have succumbed and begun to live according to the law. And his rhetorical point there is, it's just the same. You receive the Spirit by faith, not by works of the law. It's not as though you had to have faith and then works of the law and then the Spirit came. So that's the way that argument would work. And that's why commentators can't be sure what if the churches of Galatia are Jewish or Gentile or both, and probably both. Are you so foolish, verse 3, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? brought to completion by circumcision. That's really what's being said. Like, and obviously the answer to this rhetorical question is no. 
I mean, even even just why would the why would the spirit have to be given so that you could be cir- circumcised and follow the old dietary laws? It makes no sense. You everybody had circumcision and the dietary laws first. No spirit was needed. So you've put the uh, cart before the horse or the caboose before the engine or whatever you want to say here. And so it's a it's an argument that's you're meant to answer easily with how ridiculous it appears. Okay, did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Now, again, there's a, a couple different options here. Is it that they received faith and they're clinging tenaciously to this faith and they suffered on account of this faith and then circumcision came along and they put their faith in circumcision and thus these former things that they suffered, they suffered in vain, if it was in vain, if they have in fact gone over to this false gospel of faith in circumcision. That's one possibility. Another possibility, again, kind of tying with that earlier reading of verse 2, is did you suffer so many things in vain if indeed it was in vain? That is to say, did you, having received faith in Christ, having received the Holy Spirit, when the circumcision teachers came through, did, were you in fact circumcised and thus suffered so many things in vain? So that's another possibility. And there's just grammatical, contextual ambiguity there, what exactly Paul means. You're going to have commentators falling on one side or the other. What I want you to see is it doesn't matter. The argument stays the same. Either way it's taken. Verse 5, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by the hearing with faith. Now this, he who works miracles is in all likelihood um, Christ Jesus. So it is he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you. Now does he do so by the works of the law or by the hearing with faith? And this is obviously going to be by the hearing of faith, just based on their own experience of having heard the gospel and received the Holy Spirit and experienced some of those gifts that were common in that era of the church, recorded, for example, in Acts. And then here he, you see by the dash, it's kind of a, Paul's getting excited here and not following strict grammar. Just as Abraham, quote, believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, end quote. And that's cited from Genesis 15. You're familiar If you're familiar with Romans, you're familiar with the extended version of Paul's argument in regard to Abraham. But you can see that this last question, does he who supply the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Obviously the answer is faith, because just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's going to form Paul's transition now to considering Abraham as our father in the faith. A couple, uh, just one thing that I want to point out to you here at this point. Look at um, his art. It's it's actually clear in the Greek than it is in the English, but um, if you look at verse 2, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit? Okay, by works of the law or out of the works of the law. That's a recurring phrase. Or by or out of the hearing of faith or hearing with faith. That's a recurring phrase. What is important to note is that these things are mutually exclusive for Paul. It's either or. And that's why the word or is written there. So, I think if you asked a Roman Catholic who is being honest, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? They'd say, both. Why not both? Or if they were intelligent, they'd say, you know, well, yeah, sure, by the Spirit, but we still have to do the works to be saved. Okay, we receive the Spirit by faith, but we still have to do the works to be saved. But it's this both and of faith and works. That's what equals salvation. That's what it equals to be in God's kingdom and be incorporated into this new creation. For Paul, that's not the case. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or 
by hearing with faith, mutually exclusive categories. And that's replicated if you look down at verse 5. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by or out of works of the law or by or out of hearing with faith or the hearing of faith? So again, you see these mutually exclusive categories. And those categories are going to progress along as um, whether it's going to be by the law or by promise. But I want you to see that these two categories are in play in Paul's thinking. And frequently these are described, or other scriptures very much like them, as exclusive particles. So the, and that's kind of shorthand for where you have these either or Pauline statements. These show that you're, I mean, here justification per se is not yet in view, but you're either justified by works of the law or by faith. There is no option C, both. And that's really where the Reformation is coming from. Not, again, I don't mean to overstate the point, not as if this were the sole or even primary Sadie's, but this mutual exclusivity in Paul's thinking, these two mutually exclusive categories, works of the law, hearing of faith, um, these, these things are exclusive and there is no option C, which would be both. And that's Roman Catholicism. That's, uh, of course, Roman Catholicism at the time of the Reformation. Okay, any questions, comments? Are we doing okay? Please. I, I, I just wanted to ask, uh, you know, our human nature uh, seems to be built into us, or maybe we've learned that through uh, life, but nothing happens unless we work for it. And, you know, here it's obviously, you know, it's being given to us by grace. I mean, I could see where humans would fall into this nature of wanting to do something or at least work alongside of God. Could, could you just comment on the... Yeah, I'm reminded of two things. I'm reminded of a distinction that becomes popular in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod by a theologian named Francis Pieper. And it's primarily because of the clarity with which he speaks it, that there are only two religions in all the world. The religion where you have to do something for said God or gods in order to receive whatever it is, usually eternal life in some form or another. Or there is the religion of grace. That is the gracious giving of the Son of God for sinners, for our forgiveness, and for the free gift of salvation. So, yeah, viewing it from that, you can see why every religion is a conditional religion, except for pure Christianity. That also is our critique of Rome, insofar, and the East, and all Christendom, really, insofar as they've given over to a kind of conditional gospel, as long as you do your best or something like this, believe in God and do your best, that conditional gospel destroys the certainty, destroys the free gift, and corrupts pure Christianity so that it is simply just another version of the religion of the world. That's the first point. The second point is that the Reformers identified this within us, this idea to constantly be justified by our works and pick yourself up by the bootstraps, and if you do something bad, you got to make good, and if you've done too many bad things, you could never possibly be forgiven or hope to be saved. And they call this the opinio legis, which is translated as the opinion of the law, and it's this inner kind of um, part of our hearts that... you know, there are different ways to articulate it, but I come to see it as a kind of perverse clinging to the natural law that is written within us. The natural law written within us is the principle of justice, but it's this perverse clinging to that sense of justice over and against the decree of God um, that you can be justified by grace through faith apart from works, um, that men recoil against and Sometimes, you know, that's where, that's where despairing, like, despairing of God's grace. Oh, I'm such a terrible sinner. I've done so many things I could never possibly be saved. 
is analogous to suicide, where when you really dig deep, the root of it is self-love and pride. Okay. I'm too proud to endure the crosses that God has placed upon me. I love myself too much and too selfishly. Or I um, love myself too much and am too proud to ever accept a gracious handout, even if that handout comes from God himself or from the nail-pierced hand of Christ. I'm too proud and I love myself too much to succumb to that. So that's it's kind of where, in the same sense that the more you really like strip down the sin of suicide, it's ugly and proud and nothing to be particularly sympathetic about. The same is true with despair, despairing of God's grace. The more you dig down into it, the less it's, oh, this person's just so humble they can't receive the grace. No, this person's so recalcitrantly proud, they refuse to receive the grace. And so that, you know, again, you lose pity the more you delve down into the true nature of that sin. So that would be the other part, um, Barry, is, yeah, we have to, um, I mean, this is the fundamental thing, though. Adam and Eve didn't believe that God was God. That's why they disobeyed him. Ever since, God has wanted to do nothing more than establish, reestablish that fundamental relationship. I'm God when I speak, believe me. And we see that at just an absolute basic fundamental level when God says, I've saved you by grace apart from works. Do you believe that? If you believe that, you've been returned to your relationship where he is God and you are not. If you reject that, whatever the reason, you retain the fallenness of saying, I will be God, not God. Please, here, here's a hand. Uh, thanks. Oh, just back here, just a couple of rows. Yeah. Uh, where Paul writes, just as Abraham believed in God, there at uh, chapter 3, verse uh, 6, mm-hmm. um, then if we look at how that happened, you know, there in Genesis chapter 12, now the Lord said to Abraham, and then he tells him all these things. And so it would be as if Abraham or Abram at the time would have said, oh, well, I'm not worthy. But no, he says, so Abram went. So I've always wondered, did, I mean, how are we to imagine that? Did Abraham call on the Lord? No, the Lord called on him. Mm-hmm. Right. And he heard and he obeyed. Yeah. So that's what Paul is saying here Yeah, I think, I mean, the point in view here for Paul is, yeah, that the hearing with faith, so Abraham heard with faith, Abraham believed God. Those would be the parallel phrases. So this is quoting from uh, Genesis as mentioned, but here, so here Paul has, just as Abraham believed toward God or believed God, And uh, elogiste, so from logis, from logic, uh, that's where we get the, so God logicked him would be a really wooden way of putting it. But it's not like God like said, oh, he believes he's manifestly and perfectly righteous. That's not what's going on. So God logics him, or um, what is the English here? counts it to him, reckons, I think, is maybe the language of the New King James, and reckons is closer than counts. Uh, but even, even count is fine, because in this sense of the word count, you're counting something, it's not in fact, but you're counting it to be the case. So, on a, so Abraham believes God, and it was counted, reckoned, logicked to him by God, that's what you don't see here, you see that in the Genesis context, as righteousness, as dikaiosune. So God, 
and this, I mean, this is getting at the fundamental point that, uh, that I just tried to make, that all God has ever wanted is to be believed. In the garden, he said, eat and you're going to die, and they disbelieved. Ever since the appeal of the gospel is, believe in me and you will live. Don't believe in me and you'll die. That's it. Have me as your God and you'll live. Reject me as your God and you'll die. It's that. It's, so the fact that God, like the mashing, it's that simple that God just says, I've given my son to die for you. You're forgiven. Believe. And when you say yes, you're in right relationship with God. And he reckons that to you as righteousness. He just says, okay, everything else is forgiven and forgotten. Everything else is cleansed by the blood of Christ. Everything else is atoned for. That's it. You have me as your God, and I take care of everything again. So at a fundamental level, this idea of reckoned it to him as righteousness, you know, we don't have to get into some medieval uh, reformational algebra to make this make sense. It's so fundamental that outside of right relationship with God, saying no to God's word, saying no to God himself as God, then you're completely in your sins. You're completely out of relationship with him. He's adversarial towards you because you have said you're adversarial toward him. But extending himself and having that received in faith, he just looks at you and says, okay, now you're on my side. Now there's no adversary. Now I've paid everything that you owe through the blood of my son. You're completely covered. You're righteous in my sight. So that's the reckoning by which God reckons us, logics us, counts us righteous through faith. You see, it's just that fundamental. All right, I forgot whose question I was answering. <laughs> Sorry about that. got a little excited. Uh, but yeah, that's... So Paul's going to use this now, and of course he uses this and makes a more thorough argument in Romans, but he's going to use Abraham and his faith as the, as the scriptural foundation for everything he says next to the Galatians. I see, I see a hand up here in the corner, so let's, let's do that and then we'll move on. I think I have always made the element of faith more complicated it just seems it should be more complicated than what it is right yeah describe it in the simplest terms in the simplest terms God says to humanity though you've rebelled against me I've put your transgressions away I've made atonement for them and I would have you be my sons and daughters for all eternity. And man receives that in faith or rejects that in pride. But why does mankind reject the, that beautiful... The, the fault lands, that's where we're not going to have any sympathy for the people, even if they're the closest of kin to us, we're not going to have any sympathy for the fact that they wound up in hell. And I can do the thought experiment of my wife, of my children, of my parents. You have no sympathy for someone who has been so cruel, so evil, so vile as to turn their back, despise, and hate the only innocent, sinless, tender, perfect, righteousness one who is love. You've just got no toleration for it. Um, he could not have done more for the people who are in hell, and they still said no. It's arrogance. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so it's arrogance, right, is what she said, yeah. And yeah, I mean, this is the ugliness of unbelief. This is the ugliness of unbelief. Uh, they are really without excuse. And there is, it's why in Revelation, you know, it can kind of shock us if we're, because we're so used to thinking of sympathizing with the unbelievers and reaching out to the unbelievers and caring for the unbelievers. But when the day of judgment comes in Revelation and it's too late to convert, the saints aren't wringing their hands being like, oh, well, heaven's not going to be so heavenly because all these people go to hell. No, they are rejoicing that 
Christ has finally come. The light is finally driving out the darkness. Satan and the wicked ones and all who allied themselves with them are cast out. We can finally have a new heavens and a new earth. We can finally have a true humanity. We can finally have um, bliss and harmony and communion with God for all eternity. So there are no tears cried over unbelievers on the day of judgment. So I think you can glimpse how that is the case when you realize, like, when you meditate on the purity of the heart of God and the tenderness of the heart of God and the humility of the heart of God. It's just, you cannot, I cannot describe it accurately with words, but just the most pure and, for the sake of it, being you can possibly imagine and that is who God is, purer than anyone else, more loving than anyone else, more gracious, more merciful, more, hum- more humble. Um, and he has gone to the utmost, the Father giving his own beloved Son, infinitely more priceless than he is to himself. The Son laying down his own life, the Spirit pouring out and doing absolutely everything and even groaning inwardly for our conversion. And stubborn, nasty, vile, piggish human beings crumpling up their arms like little raisins and saying, I'd rather burn in hell than be with you. Pardon me if I will not be weeping, or any of the other saints, we will not be weeping on the day of judgment because that ugly vileness is exactly what needs to go away. And that ugly vileness at root is the thing that's toxifying the world and ruining the world as we speak. That hate from that hatred of God comes all other sins and wickedness and vileness that we experience here that taints and corrupts everything. So, yeah, I think, I think understanding unbelief for what it really is and understanding God for who he really is. And, of course, you can see this no better than in the crucifixion of Jesus. That's where, you know, as Christ's heart is opened up with the spear, so the heart of God is opened up in the crucifixion. And we see him as he truly is. And, you know, again, then you've, you've just got a choice. Are you going to be with those who revile or those who receive? That's it. A beautiful image of the two thieves on the cross and the simple existential fact that you're either one thief or the other. You're the one who reviles him until your dying breath and you die and go to hell. Or you're the one who, rightfully convicted and condemned, turns to him and says, remember me. And he says to you, you will be with me in paradise. It's just that simple. That simple. So, Anyway, thanks for the opportunity. Um, any other questions or comments? We ready to motor on? One in the back. Uh, real quick, back to the theme of, you know, uh, the problem with the evangelicals and a lot of Christians today that think they're um, equal to God or, you know, help God in this process. Uh, oftentimes when they talk of converting people to the Lord, they take credit, literally take credit for them, for that conversion themselves. And it just always strikes me as very strange that they would they would do that when... Obviously, uh, we're to spread the word of God, and Holy Spirit does the harvest. Yeah, that's a great point. This, the, and that's really the pernicious nature of decision theology, is it turns this free gift of God to be received in faith and flips it on its head so that faith is the one good work, the one thing I can do that pleases God. I mean, and then, then you can boast, can't you? So, well, I believe, but Jones didn't. Yeah, and you also fall afoul of Jesus' parables, not least of which the one where it's, thank you, God, that I made a decision for you, and I'm not like this other poor, miserable friend that didn't. Um, He deserves what he gets. Jesus says both men went home and only one justified. It wasn't the guy who said, thank you, God, that I'm so special in me. So, yeah, that, the decision theology is such a big deal because even though it's kind of... And look, I think you can be a Christian and have fallen into this error. You just need to recognize it's an error and learn how to think and speak biblically. So I'm not condemning a Christian who they're like, well, that's the only thing I've ever known. 
I'm condemning the theology itself and those pastors who should know better who teach this theology and gut the gospel at the most fundamental part, redefining faith as a receipt of the promise and transforming that into an act of the will by which I can differentiate myself from someone else. Yeah, that... That's a perversion of the gospel, 100%. And I, I mean, I'm convinced that if somebody, goes to, if somebody goes into heaven beating their breast, they've been taught all this, they've learned all this, they've known all this, but they've rejected it. And they go to heaven beating their breast saying, nope, I'm here because I decided for Jesus and those people are in hell because they didn't make the decision I made. I don't think such a person's saved. You're, you're basically saying to God, like, instead of, Instead of, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. Lord Jesus Christ, save me. And entrusting yourself to him, which is what faith does, you're walking up there presenting him with a bill of sale and saying, here's what I've done. You owe me heaven. That was the question that I had. What about the Christians? I mean, I can understand Jones who hasn't accepted Christ. I can understand that. But what about the Christian who says, I'm a better Christian than you. I, I know what I'm doing, and you don't. If you and were, you, you probably wouldn't say that. <laughs> well, <laughs> that I might mean, be a good comeback. It, you know, if you then, were, you probably wouldn't say that. But we say, Pastor, we say, uh, <laughs> but we're all Christians. What's that? You know, it's easy to say, well, we're all Christians. Yeah. You have a different denomination, but we're all Christians. But then there are those Christians who oh, say, I, I am a better Christian than you. Yeah, so there's two dangers to avoid. The or one, they don't the pers- say it, but they, you know they've got it there. Yeah, the one, the personal sin of pride, but the other sin, the other side is apathy. We're all Christians, so it doesn't matter. Right. Hey, get off my back. I can attend whatever church I want. Why? Because I think that God's word is most clearly preached and lived in this church or because I can bring my latte into the worship hall. Yeah. So get off my back. I choose the latte. We're all just Christians here. So yeah, we've got these two opposite errors. The error of pride. I'm a better Christian than you are, which is ironic because anyone who thinks such a thing isn't, is is maybe not even Christian, but certainly not better than anyone else. Remember, what St. Paul says, esteem others as greater than yourself. And he calls himself the chief of all sinners. So if that attitude in heart isn't in us, then we're not Christian. And um, insofar as we're boasting, we're ironically condemning ourselves objectively. But the flip side is, okay, so then it just doesn't matter. We're all Christians, it doesn't matter. And that's a bunch of garbage too, uh, because all that does is creates apathy and laziness toward God and apathy and lazy and the kind of selfishness. Well, I just like the music better. So you're going to throw away the sacrament of Christ, his very body and blood, because you like the music better and because you can get a fat-free, dairy-free latte at, and go into the worship experience center. That's a that's pretty poor excuse for going to church where you go to church. Okay, it was that good? Yeah, all right. Please. Uh, when you said earlier, all God has ever wanted is to be believed, That mm-hmm. those are your words that hit me between the eyes and sure. uh, reminded me of the words of Jesus in John six twenty nine, which Jesus summed it up and he says, uh, this is the work of God that you believe. Yeah. Sense. So, yeah. I mean think of all of this discussion in that perspective the work is being done by god yeah. he's continually at work to harvest those believers you know? right so i mean it's just uh, uh puts in perspective this galatians teaching all the arguments yeah. and everything so yeah yeah it's a it's a fundamental and profound teaching because it goes right down to the very simplicity of what it means to be a human being Thank you. Okay, so he's, he's introduced Abraham who believed God, and simply by virtue of his faith, God reckons or counts Abraham to be fully righteous, as previously described. There should not be a paragraph break here, but there is. 
Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Now that is a profound statement, particularly for Paul as a Jew to make, because the Jews counted themselves sons of Abraham. In fact, they were biological sons of Abraham. But here, Paul redefines sonship. You are not a son of Abraham just because you can trace your family lineage back to him. You're not a son by biology. You're a son by faith. And so if you... uh, Yeah, this is interesting. So those of faith are sons of Abraham. If you have Abraham's faith, then Abraham is your father. That's the point. So does this redefine Israel? Yeah, 100%. Israel is those who believe, not those who have the biology of Abraham. So this is why St. Paul in Romans says, not all of Israel is Israel. What does he mean? Not all of Israel, that is biological Israel, is Israel proper, that is Israel of the faith. Israel proper is Israel of the faith. Though All who have faith are Israel, our sons of Abraham. This, by the way, then will change your eschatology because you're not, a, you're not waiting for this magical moment where the Jews are somehow brought in and, as it is often thought, brought in by some way alternative to Christ, which is just plain heresy. Of course, that can't be the case. But Israel is us, is the church. Israel consists of all who have the faith of Abraham. If this verse was all we had in the scriptures, and it is very much not, if this verse was all we had in the scriptures, it would um, be sufficient to make the point. So, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And, you know, you might even contrast this with circumcision. It's not those who are circumcised who are the sons of Abraham, but those who have faith. It's not those who obey the law. And here we're thinking like circumcision and the ceremonial laws and the um, calendar and the dietary laws and these kinds of things, right? It's not those people who are the sons of Abraham, but those who have the faith of Abraham. Okay, verse 8, and the scripture, now here, this is so fun, scripture is personified. As far as I know, this is the only place in the New Testament, at least, that this is done. So, the scripture foreseeing, of course, it's God who's the author of scripture, and it's God who foresees and knows all things, and so... The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Now, here Paul means en masse. I mean, that's the, that's the real strange thing from a Jewish perspective. If you've been, as you've been trucking along and you know your history, you know that from time to time these Gentiles are those or this particular individual or that, uh, this widow or um, that Syrian commander... But the idea that God would extend salvation to all people, Jew and Gentile, global, is so mind-blowing. Paul's great treatise on this is Ephesians, and he simply calls this the mystery of Christ that has been unveiled. It's, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around, especially because most of us are Gentiles. We've just been brought in. But this is mind-blowing that God, from even from the Old Testament, envisioned a time in which the world, the entire world, would be offered salvation. And that's what's happened. So the scripture for saying that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Now, notice, because here, apropos of the discussion with Rome and the Reformation, that God would justify the Gentiles by faith working through love, by faith and works. No, by faith full stop. And in fact, we've seen um, Paul oppose faith with works of the law in the preceding paragraph, back in verses 2 and 5. So this is you know, yet another section that should make you feel extremely comfortable as a Lutheran. And you can know, too, that many of the church fathers on these passages and elsewhere are Lutheran. They say the same thing. St. Paul says the same thing we say. So, the scriptures foreseeing that God would justify 
the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Beforehand is before the law is given. It's not quite clear at this point, but that's where Paul's going. So beforehand, the gospel is preached to Abraham. Now, this is St. Paul writing. Does St. Paul know what the gospel is? The gospel is the forgiveness of sins in Christ Jesus, the death of Christ on our behalf. He's repeated that gospel over and over already. This gospel is done what? Is preached to whom? Abraham. What's Abraham's faith in? God, generically, the existence of God, the goodness of God, the graciousness of God. No, all of that's insufficient. In Christ crucified for the forgiveness of sins. That is the gospel St. Paul is saying is preached to Abraham. So that Abraham grasps that this seed that God is promising to him, this Messiah, will make atonement for the sins of the world. Paul's claim is that it's the same gospel I preached to you, Galatians, was preached to Abraham. This, this too, is very helpful for you to use. I mean, if you need a proof text, fine. That Christianity goes way before Jesus, way before St. Paul. Um, and what I mean by Jesus is the incarnation, of course. That Christianity is not 2,000 years old. Every time I hear that, I want to leap into my phone and shake the lapels of whoever's speaking and correct them on Christianity 101. If you knew the first thing about Christianity, you'd know that the Christian claim is that it goes way back, all the way in this case to Abraham. But we know that it goes back even further, all the way to Genesis 3.15 in the Proto-Evangelium, where God says to the serpent in the presence of Adam and Eve, you will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. This seed of the woman, this Messiah will come. So faith that Adam and Eve had all the way through Abraham, all the way through the coming of Christ, St. Paul, and all the way for 2,000 years has always been faith in this one who will come and will suffer, you will bruise his heel, and yet in and through his very suffering, he will crush the power of the devil, which includes sin and death. So, the entire history of the world has been Christianity, has been promise in the Messiah, the Christ, either believed or rejected by men. If you want to try to put a finer point on it, you can say all the Old Testament saints believed in the Christ who was with them and was to come. All the New Testament saints believe in the Christ who is with us and came. Or, who was with us and will come again, would be another way to put it. But the bottom line is Christianity is Christianity, and it goes back to Adam and Eve. It goes back for the whole scope. It is the oldest religion. You can find that in the Jewish Hebrew text um, that, that it is the oldest religion, faith in this Messiah. And in fact, what we call Judaism today really is born somewhere, probably, arguably, after the Babylonian captivity. And it's just this idea that God wants you to be a moral good person, and if you are, you can get into heaven. That's a new religion, okay, relative to Christianity, which literally goes thousands of years before that, this promise of, of the Messiah, of the seed of the Christ. So this will be another thing that really reshapes and reforms our worldview and our understanding of what Christianity is and how fundamental Christianity is. This existed in all ages and will until the end of the age. So the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now, did this promise come to Abraham before he was circumcised or after he was circumcised? Before he was circumcised, which has a twofold importance. 
in the first place it came to him before he was circumcised, that is, before he was a Jew in the proper sense. The gospel promise of Christ came to Abraham while he was a Gentile. That's huge. It's huge. That's why he's the man of faith. Not the Jew of faith. Not even the Gentile of faith. Just the man of faith. Okay. All right. And then the second point, um, more narrowly focused on this particular pastoral circumstance stance, is that Abraham is given the promise before he is circumcised. And that's exactly where Paul's going to go next. Can circumcision annul the promise? It can't. Once a promise is laid down and ratified, nothing can annul it. So the fact that Abraham is sacrificed later doesn't mean that salvation is by sacrifice. That's the next step that Paul's going to take in his argument. Let me pause there, see if you have any thoughts, questions, and if not, we'll round out this section and we'll go into that next argument he makes. Everybody's okay? All right, so here is the promise in you, God says to Abraham, and we're somewhere in the middle of verse 8, shall all the nations be blessed. So are Jews in view? Or Gentiles also. Both, all, all the nations shall be blessed. So the very promise to Abraham is that everyone, Jew and Gentile. All right, verse 9. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, irrespective of their nationality. That's the point. And that's the foundation then upon which Paul's going to. Uh, go into his second argument for all who rely, that's the key word, on the works of the law are under a curse. Rely for what purpose? Well, remember verse 8, that God would justify the Gentiles. So those who rely on the works of the law for their justification are under a curse. For it is written, and now he's citing Deuteronomy 27, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. Is Deuteronomy a part of the law? Yeah. I mean, that's the irony. That's why he'll say, you who want to be justified by the law, do you not read the law? The law itself tells you that this is impossible. So, he doesn't make that argument here, but he does make that argument elsewhere. So, quoting Deuteronomy 27, 26, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. So, if you can't fulfill the law perfectly, then the law is not going to justify you before God. Verse 11, now it is evident that no one is justified. So now we have that, we, we know for certain we're talking about justification as we have been from verse 8 until now. So now it is evident that no one is justified before God, made righteous before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. Now, this is a quotation of Habakkuk 2.4. And the way Paul is using this, I think, is evident enough that the righteous live by faith. Con, uh, compare, contrast that with um, that God would justify the Gentiles by faith back in verse 8. So God would justify the Gentiles by faith, and now the righteous shall live by faith. Okay? Compare, contrast that again with verse 6. 
just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now back to verse 11, the righteous shall live by faith. Okay? You can see how those three expressions are all saying the same thing and how they're all going to be put in opposition to the law or the works of the law. So again, you have the option of trying to be justified by the law. Even the law itself tells you that's impossible. You have the option to be justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And that is precisely the gospel. And there is no other option. There is no both and commingling of these things. Does that make sense? So that's Paul's rhetoric and rationale. And again, the Reformation is largely based upon this framework and understanding, as well as that found throughout the scriptures, but and the scriptures on top of the scriptures, Genesis 15, Habakkuk 2, Galatians 3, Romans 4 and 5, etc. All right, and then verse 12, we have yet another one of these exclusive particles or mutually exclusive categories where he says, so the righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith. So again, just who cares what anybody else thinks? Wrap your head around what St. Paul thinks. St. Paul says faith and the works of the law are mutually exclusive. The law is not of faith. That, those are the categories he's working with. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Now, this again is cited from Leviticus 18.5. The one who does the works of the law shall live by them. Um, do you see how that's different from the righteous shall live by faith? You either live by the works of the law or you live by faith. They're not in the same category. They can't be commingled. It's either Habakkuk, the law is, uh, excuse me, it's either Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith, or it's Leviticus, the one who does them, the one who does the works of the law shall live by them. And of course, the law, as previously cited, says that you can't possibly do the works of the law. So that leaves one thing left, faith, justification by faith, apart from the works of the law. Okay, verse 13, Christ redeemed, uh, the language is um, exegorasan, so agora is the root word marketplace, so Christ bought us. But what's in view here too is if you... uh, so your firstborn son has to go, uh, is dedicated to the Lord, and if you would redeem him, you have to like uh, offer a sacrifice, and that sacrifice is the redeem, the redeeming of your son or the payment of your son. Okay, um, or if you're, uh, if you had a great debt and your children were going to be sold into slavery to pay for that debt. Uh, you would redeem them or someone would redeem them from that fate by paying for them. So that's the, that's the language here that we are all under the curse of the law and Christ redeemed us. He bought us or paid the price for us to not be under the curse of the law. Now, notice what's happening in terms of the, in terms of the worldview here. We were under the curse of the law, this present evil age, but Christ through his death redeemed us. Christ through his death brought us into a new creation, a new life. I was part of the old, but through Christ I died and now I'm part of the new. That same dynamic is happening here. We were under the curse of the law, but now we have been redeemed from that. How so Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse 
for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. This cited from Deuteronomy 21-23. So Christ, born into the old evil age, the present evil age, born as one under the law, becomes a curse under the law for us, that by his death he might put all of that aside and instantiate a new creation, a new age, and that we might, through his very death, have this new life and this new creation, which means also then we're no longer under the law. It has nothing to do, I hope you can see, with like morality at this point. It just has to do with, do you have to get circumcised? Do you have to do the dietary law? Do you have to do all this stuff? No, you don't have to do all this stuff because Christ has come. It is a new creation. Now, are we going to articulate, articulate our existence in that new creation in according with some moral principles? And lo and behold, they're going to be the same ones of the law. But that doesn't mean that you're under the law as a system, as an age. Does that make sense? So that's where Paul's going to move us. By the end of Galatians, it's going to have some really strong moral exhortation for Christians. It's going to be perfectly in content with the moral teaching of the law. But he's still going to say, you're not under the law. You're now under the law of Christ. And here's a really helpful way to understand, like, you're under the law of Moses or under the law of Christ. You're under the age of Moses or the age of Christ. Christ. And so where you find these juxtapositions, it's not like you've got to do this complex systematic algebra. You just need to recognize that, that one's describing the previous or old or fallen age and the other the new. All right, hopefully that makes sense. I've run us out of time, so let me stop there. And if you do want to hang out, if you have any questions, I'm happy to hang out for a bit. And um, this class will be canceled Uh, next week. So two weeks from now, we will pick back up uh, in this argument in verses 10 through 14 of chapter 3. The Lord be with you.